Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, uh, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. Today I have a returning guest and he's coming back for uh, the book we're putting together on cancer. You know, we did one on viruses that has just come out on Amazon, Kindle, and soon to be Audible. So we're going to have a special link for that. But this one's going to be on cancer. It's a huge topic, a lot of questions, a lot of people I have to speak to. But I have uh, Gabor Balashi. Um, he's been on before. Again, he's the uh, Henry Lawford Professor of the Lewis and Beatrice Lawford Center for Physical and Quantitative Biology. He's a professor in the Department of Biomedical Engineering. All this happens at Stony Brook in New York, out on the island. So, Gabor, thanks for coming back. Thank you for the opportunity, Richard. Oh, no problem. Yeah, so today I want to talk to you about uh, the questions I have for the book. So it won't be as much as your, you know, we won't be focusing on your particular research, but again, just your knowledge of, of cancer and your insights. And uh, I'm going to ask you questions that are speculatory. Please feel free to speculate. I know that some of it is not your expertise. That's okay. But because you're in the field, you know, you're going to have some insights and uh, we're going to be speaking to a lot of people. So, so what, when cancer first starts, some of the story so far seems to be that, oh, uh, you know, a random mutation will happen in a cell or two. And that's how it starts. And then I guess it's, it's known that viruses can cause some cancers. But in your opinion and experience, what do you, how do you think cancer first starts and why? That's a great question, uh, Richard. I think the answer is complicated. And uh, certainly what people uh, have described and what's the current picture, the, the paradigm is uh, the, the mutation-based hypothesis that one cell gets a mutation, which somehow gives it an advantage, fitness benefit in its uh, environment. And then that cell grows faster, dies slower than it needs to and then ultimately generates a tumor. On the other hand, uh, with the current knowledge we have, there are alternative paths to cancer, in my opinion, besides this uh, standard view. In particular, cells can undergo changes non-genetically, changes that are heritable. So all of those unwanted properties of higher division rate, less death, all of that can happen uh, non-genetically. Oh, you know, you, you just brought up you just brought up an important point. Yeah. You said cells can experience changes that are heritable, and I I automatically jump to the whole person, let's say, or the whole creature, it being heritable and it going to the um, not the somatic cells but the germline cells. But then I I realized, oh, well, the cells are undergoing cell division, so there's a second type of heredity that stays amongst the somatic cells. Which do you refer to, and, and what is the change that's not genetic that's heritable? Yes, that's a great question. So I refer to the second type. Uh, I refer to uh, heritability within the somatic cell population within that region of the tissue. And uh, uh, you bring, bring up an important question. A second separate question could be, how can non-genetic changes be inherited through a human life cycle and the next human generation? That's a different question. I think for understanding cancer, we really need to understand what happens at the cellular level. 
So cells are your organisms that evolve and um, uh, changes in cells, be genetic or non-genetic, can provide properties that take them out of context, that uh, make them disobey the rules of cooperation uh, that uh, a normal human body requires. Well, what, what are some, if they're non-genetic, what are the changes that are somatically heritable then? Yeah, so uh, non-genetic is a very broad category. And, you know, we, when we go into molecular causes and uh, mechanisms, it's an infinite uh, field. I mean, uh, people are discovering more and more of these mechanisms. But just to mention a few epigenetic... Like, like, uh, like epigenetic changes. Yeah, know, like epigenetic like changes. Histone action. Exactly. Uh, histone uh, acetylation, other histone modifications, uh, methylation, DNA methylation. So all of these chemical modifications uh, play a role, and they are described in, in um, increasing detail and uh, being um, investigated by a number of uh, emerging techniques uh, that start doing analyses at the single cell level. But I'd like to uh, emphasize that besides that, and involving those, there are other, yet other mechanisms, uh, one of them being positive feedback. And positive feedback does not necessarily require any particular chemical mechanism except a gene activating it itself. So uh, a gene producing more protein, if it fuels even more protein production, that self-sustaining cycle can lead to um, a change that's heritable. And it's not genetic and it's not tied to any specific epigenetic mechanism. So some of these uh, feedback... Okay, you mean like... Um... So you're saying what an upregulation or a downregulation of a gene that uh, an upregulation of a certain protein that would be expressed is carried on after cell division and in that way it is heritable. Is that what you mean? Yes, exactly. So, and the reason I'm saying that it's not tied to specific epigenetic changes is because it happens in yeast, it happens in bacteria. It's an overarching theme. It's basically a gene making a protein that activates the uh, protein synthesis from the same gene. Basically uh, activates transcription and then translation of the same protein. Whenever this happens, either directly or indirectly, it can lead to states where cells have a high protein level or low protein level. And these are inherited over cell divisions. Because in this new world, in the world of cells, the generations are basically cell division. I think, I think what you're saying is there's genetic inheritance, but there's also essentially the condition of the cell. It's like we have, we have genetic inheritance, we have epigenetic inheritance. But again, if there's been an upregulation of certain proteins, they exist in a given cell, the gene remains upregulated. Like not only is the, um, the new daughter cells, they have the same, I guess, cytoplasmic condition as the, you know, as the progenitor cell or the mother cell, but they'll continue to perpetuate that condition. Exactly. That's correct. And um, this is topic that uh, pervades uh, all of biology. So it's not just specific to cancer. Okay. Interesting. At what point do you think, you know, like, uh, so I guess the one centimeter tumor is probably about a billion cells from what I've heard. At what point in cancer's development do you think it um, has a firm establishment of self versus other, meaning that it now tries to trick the immune system and it's not coming just from one cancer cell, but the cancer is acting as a unified whole, as a separate organism. You know, it's, it's trying to in, induce angiogenesis. It's trying to maybe send out 
cells to establish metastatic sites? I mean, at what point in a cancer's development do you think that the cancer acts as a single unit? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I mean, uh, if we accept that uh, cancer starts with a single cell changing in genetic or epigenetic ways, that cell has to divide and generate some sort of a mass, start requiring vasculature and uh, start acting as uh, trying to survive the stress. So what when that happens, it, it really... Um, uh, depend may depend on the tissue type, may depend on the cell type, may depend on the specific cancer that uh, originated. So some cancers grow faster, some may require more oxygen, uh, more nutrient, but almost inevitably, when a tumor forms and reaches a certain mass, uh, the interior of the tumor will be different from the exterior in the sense that it will lack nutrients and it will be hypoxic. So when, when that happens, that generates signaling that uh, uh, leads to um, a vasculature expansion. What is, the, is this? Do you think the cells in a tumor, for instance, are they acting alone or are they acting in concert? And if, if there's this transition to multicellularity, when does that happen and under what conditions? Like, What's your, your speculation as to when that happens? Or do you think that you know, a tumor, no matter what size, it's, all, it's still all the cells for themselves. It's well, not actually um, coordinated. It's an interesting question, which um, to, the, to which it's hard to give a clear answer, just because we as human beings are multicellular organisms, right? So every piece of tissue we have is part of a large multicellular system, and that's clearly multicellular. It's uh, based on cooperation. Like yeah. my liver, you know, all the cells in my liver, there's different cell types, tissues, regions microenvironments, but yet all the cells in my liver appear to be acting in concert to keep me going. Otherwise, that probably, you know, wouldn't last long. In That's cancer, correct. it seems like a blurred line. Like, how much coordination do you think there is and how much, exactly. you know, and under what conditions do you speculate that might happen? Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. So regarding that, I would say that cancer is a step away from multicellularity rather than a step towards multicellularity. So initially when cancer develops, it's, it's defection. It's breaking loose and leaving the rules of multicellularity that uh, a normal human body requires. So initially, at least we should be talking about getting away from multicellularity. Now, later on, of course, uh, these cells still carry mechanisms and uh, molecules that mediated multicellular processes, uh, and they can be then uh, misregulated. And just as an example, normal human development involves movement of cells and uh, changing cell types and things like that. It doesn't happen in a normal adult tissue, but cancer can reinitiate these processes that normally occur during embryonic development. 
for example. So when does it act as a multicellular organism again? And to what degree? I think is an interesting question that, again, totally varies from cancer to cancer. But, but this new multicellular entity, if, if it exists or if we can define it, it's going to be different from the normal human adult multicellularity. And that's the point. That's how uh, cancer can uh, develop by cheating on the normal rules. What is the order of abilities that you would speculate cancer cells acquire that allow them to you know, proliferate at will, to acquire resources, et cetera, to evade the immune system? Like, what do you think is the first thing that happens that yeah. changes a cell? Or is there a first thing or it's, it's just heterogeneous, you know, pathways and starts uh, for various cells to change to cancer? Yeah, it's a, it's a hard question. So uh, most cancers are epithelial and um, epithelia are like standing in line and standing in a strict order, following rules. Yeah. Like you don't grow unless you're told to grow and um, you die when there is a need to die. And things like that. And um, I think the first step is cells to disobey these rules. So when they are still part of epithelia and cells start growing uh, without an appropriate signal, or they don't die when they are told to die, th- those are the first steps. And how they happen could be genetic or non-genetic. We discussed that. You think there's a disruption in the cell-to-cell signaling? Like the, yeah. the cells can't do, they can't. Uh, see the cells from the whole they can't uh, follow the instructions is that the first issue absolutely yeah because uh the order uh i just mentioned uh grow only upon the environmental order or die when it's needed that is following orders and um uh, the orders come from usually nearby cells uh and they can be many of many kinds they could be chemical signals they could be mechanical signals and so on so um, whenever the cells misinterpret these orders or disobey them, that's that's the first step. Um, okay. And as a consequence, they start growing locally. And of course, epithelia have layers. And as a consequence of that, you will start getting multiple layers, you know, uh, folding of layers and abnormal structures that pathologists usually look for. And as this, this process continues, the order is broken down more and more. So instead of getting a line of cells or, or, or a sheet of cells, you start getting a hump of cells that fills cavities. And when the cavities are full and, and the constraints are building up, you start getting the hypoxia phenomenon, the mechanical stress. And that's when uh, the disorder just continues and cells then start breaking away. So that's an important step when uh, they break away from their surroundings and start being motile and invasive. And uh, when that happens, that's like a a new phase of cancer development. And that's uh, the gateway to metastasis. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. I didn't hear from you uh, like a super proliferative phrase or phase. You know, at what point do you think like the cancer cells, again, the signaling goes wrong according to what you're saying. But at what point uh, is the unlimited proliferation turn on? Not just the refusal to die, but... You know, I'm going to keep dividing and dividing and dividing like crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, I, I would be a little bit careful about that phrase because it uh, may seem like that's what uh, cancer cells do. It's unlimited proliferation. Uh, I don't think so. It's not necessarily the case. So cancers are heterogeneous. So some, many cancers still maintain a structure where some cells divide more than others. There are so-called cancer stem cells 
uh, and then actively proliferating cancer cells, and there's a whole range in between. And um, I certainly think that all cells need nutrients and supplies to divide. So, for example, when they grew a little bit and they ran out of supplements, they will not grow. They will stop until vasculature develops and then yeah. they grow again. And um, I would say that some cells may grow and the interior of the tumor may be completely quiescent. And uh, all of these things can happen. And I would say one key property of cancer is heterogeneity when it starts advancing. That means is that some cells will be super proliferating. Some will be just moderately proliferating. Some may play a stem cell role, a, a cancer stem cell role. Some will be migrating. And that's the difficulty when that heterogeneity develops. Then how do you deal with it? Because most treatments... Most treatments target exactly the property you refer to. It's uh, hyperproliferation. Uh, we are trying to kill uh, hyperproliferating cells. And there are various ways. Uh, some are just generic and killing every dividing cell. Or some are more targeted and then they are killing uh, cancer cells, for example, that are expressing a certain hormone receptor at high level. Yeah. but uh, do, you, do, you, um, do you think that cancer cells are able to turn other cells cancerous or... Can cancer cells only come as the progeny of other cancer cells? Yeah, that's a difficult question. I think there are examples when that can happen, and it can happen both ways. So cancer cells may be able to turn other cells cancerous, and uh, exosomes is a mechanism that people mm. talk about. Like they secrete these little particles carrying uh, molecular signals that may convert other cells. But uh, also the tissue environment can uh, stop a potentially cancerous cell. And there were experiments where a highly invasive type of cancer cell embedded in a, in a, a normal microenvironment didn't generate tumors. So I think it goes both ways. So these signals definitely exist. And how they play out is an interesting question that's unsolved as far as I know. It seems like there's a battle for voice. It's like being the majority of a political party or the minority. It seems like perhaps at some point in cancer's development, it becomes more of a majority voice. And then it, I guess, essentially runs the show and you know commands resources and causes change. Yeah. That, so that, that political game is ongoing. Uh, I would say there are many parties. So unlike in the U.S., we have two main parties. Uh, in cancer, it's a, a multi-party system, and mm. definitely um, elections happen regionally, and they happen globally, and um, that's basically the selection acting on the system, and whoever wins uh, will play the game. And uh, what I'm saying here is that uh, in some phases, it may not be uh, growth. The, the party of growth may be outvoted, and the party of migration may be uh, voted in. And then they uh, dictate the game by invading and finding new territory. And then the party of growth gets uh, upper hand again in the new region. And, uh, you know, this is a very complicated game. It is, yeah. Yeah, but heterogeneity, once again, is the basis of it. If it was a one-party system, like it was a communist uh, system with a single party, we would be in a much better position to... Uh, treat cancer right yeah because then you can have drugs that would target everyone and exactly right now yeah because of the heterogeneity some will respond some will be affected some not etc yeah. yeah what about uh, uh communication between primary tumors and metastases what do you think is going on there do you think there's extracellular vesicles or exosomes that are used as communication or you know how do you think niches i guess there's a bunch of questions in here so 
certain cancers seem to have certain tropisms for organs to metastasize to. First of all, why do you think that is? And then I want to ask you about uh, possible interactions between primary and metastatic tumors. But again, why do you think there's a tropism? Why does lung cancer prefer to go to, I don't even remember, but let's say bone and liver? You know, yeah. and, and other cancers prefer to go other places. Yeah, that's a long-standing question. This well-known seed and soil hypothesis that uh, not all seeds go well, grow well in all soils. And I mean, it's a great idea. And but how it works and what's behind this idea, I think, is still not known. Like why a certain tissue type develops metastasis, and when we say it does more than other tissues, is again talking about a chance game because in many people you know those tumor cells may be circulating and they don't form metastases <laughs> so and when they form metastases differ so it's once again it's not a simple process it's not uh, granted and and what determines this is probably key and lock mechanism between the the target tissue and the migrating cancer cell so already the mutations or or the, the original type of cell that leaves the primary site, plus its mutations may enable uh, features that will fit a certain tissue better than the other. And this may relate back to uh, development again, maybe uh, tissue types that have common uh, origin embryonically and things like that, that may play a role. But I don't think it's um, well understood yet why it happens. And now regarding your other question, uh, signaling once a secondary tumor develops, uh, is there ongoing signaling? Well, it, it could totally, and I think there are ongoing studies on that. And the signals could be uh, chemical, like interleukins and uh, molecular signals, growth signals, and uh, they can be uh, more complex, like uh, the exosomes we talked about, which carry multiple molecules at once. So, <laughs> how all of this plays out is a pretty difficult question. And, you know, some of this signaling may even prepare a distant tissue to accept metastasis. One interesting thing I would like to point out is, I just read about this, is that treatment uh, may play a role, actually. And what I'm referring to is a particular case of breast cancer. It's her two-positive breast cancer. So uh, that's um, treated by her septin, let's say after surgery. And that eliminates cells in most parts of the body. But because of the blood-brain barrier. Uh, this drug doesn't really get into the brain. So if any cell makes it to the brain, it finds a safe haven there. And uh, uh, this actually is a new emerging problem that treatment of uh, uh, HER2-positive breast cancer can actually uh, lead to secondary brain tumors. And I don't know if it's causative. It may not be. It's, it's a new phenomenon that we didn't know about because uh, targeted treatment didn't exist really. For that long. Have you seen any studies that analyze the heterogeneity and the composition of primary tumors versus metastases to mm-hmm. see like how different they are and what those differences are? And, you know, if you can look at a lineage and say, oh, this metastasis came from here, we can tell because it has, you know, three more mutations down the line than oh, progenitors. Sure. So, so, so that's uh, uh, been attempted at various levels based on technology. So nowadays with single cell sequencing technology, I know one group, it's uh, Christina Curtis. I think she's at Stanford uh, trying to do exactly that. So uh, trying to find out what's the genetic uh, makeup of the primary tumor and what's the metastasis and then trying to compare and uh, reconstruct evolutionary history. So yeah, this is, all of this is ongoing. 
I think um, based on what I know, and this may be changing, metastasis is not like primary tumor formation, meaning there are no single genes that can be pinned to uh, uh, the formation of metastasis in terms of mutation. Like there are no genetic mutations that lead uh, to uh, specifically to metastasis. Unlike for primary tumors where we know about P53, P10, so um, some of these tumor suppressors or then oncogenes uh, being activated. Single gene can cause, like KRAS, can cause um, tumor formation. For metastasis, what uh, has to happen on top of that is very complex and much less clear. And I think the better way to look at it is not really mutations, but rather protein level changes and uh, microRNA level changes, which could have many causes, but ultimately rewire the cells to be able to invade and uh, relocate. In terms of heterogeneity, how do you think it arises? Some would say, oh, you know, since the mutations are random, then different cells will mutate randomly. But um, again, does heterogeneity doesn't appear to have lineages. Can you tell that a certain cell in a tumor came, it's, it's like the third evolution of cell or the third... Uh, the third level of, you know, the great, a great granddaughter of the original cancer cell. And you can tell because, you know, the mutations are taking a certain form and a certain, uh, you know, you can see the lineage. Can you do that with heterogeneity? And um, why do you think heterogeneity arises? That's what I'm saying. Yeah, so I think you can do that more and more with genetic heterogeneity. So with single cell sequencing, you can uh, reconstruct with increasing resolution the genetic makeup of single cells. And then you can construct phylogenetic trees at the cellular level, trying to ask which cell comes from where and which may have been the ancestor. And that's exactly the exciting ongoing work that uh, some labs are doing. On the other hand, as we said, there is a non-genetic facet of heterogeneity, and that's much harder to uh, track back. So uh, epigenetic changes, non-genetic, stochastic, environmental changes, they will be heritable, but they will not have an imprint like uh, the genetic mutations have it in the genome, these other changes, which are non-genetic, will not have an imprint that you can follow back and and construct phylogenetic trees. So that's going to be much more difficult. Okay. Why do you think this heterogeneity arises? And how Uh early on in the cancer do you think it arises? Do you think it's happening at cell number two? Yeah. Or do you think it's happening later on? The basis is the epithelia. And epithelia already have some heterogeneity. Because um, in epithelia, you have differentiated cells that form a lumen, and then you have um, stem-like cells. And that's just the most basic structure that all epithelia have, as far as we know. Now, there may be other partly differentiated or other subtypes, but there is this basic structure, and the frequency of those um, progenitor cells is pretty well defined. These are adult stem cells. So... Uh, Most of the cells are differentiated and uh, that's it. Now, when the cancer starts forming, and as we discussed, some of these cells start breaking away from these rules, then as they do, they will become more and more heterogeneous. At which stage they, you know, develop heterogeneity? Well, I think at every stage, whenever they break away and uh, first of all, form additional layers, form a hump, fill the lumen, start invading at every step, the heterogeneity increases. It's not decreasing, it's going to be increasing because you're breaking away from the baseline normal body level heterogeneity, which is highly controlled and uh, it, it preserves just the necessary level of differences 
that maintain a normal tissue. Once you start breaking away from that, all breaks loose, uh, basically. Yeah, at every step, heterogeneity only increases, be it genetic okay. or non-genetic. And you, you mentioned earlier that tumors have a structure. What is that structure? Is it just a, an undifferentiated ball? Or is it a core sensor with stem cells? Or stem cells that just first to have the tumor? Like, what kind of structures have been observed in tumors? Uh, I mean, that may differ from tumor to tumor, but and it, it totally depends on the stage, like how far you are how far away from you are from the baseline of normal epithelia. But uh, I would say that whenever a lump develops that's uh, becoming quiescent in the middle and hypoxic in the middle, there is this general architecture that the exterior has uh, supplies, so it's more in the growing state, and the interior is more um, in the hypoxic, quiescent, uh, stressed state. So there is this, because of the spatial structure, this uh, inevitably develops. And then when uh, cells start migrating away from that, then you will have the, uh, a core component with what we just described. And then you will have these migrating cells that can be in any area and uh, uh, respond to their environment and develop even more heterogeneity. So there will be the village and there will be the herd around it. And uh, okay. Yeah, I, I think that's a, a pretty general structure. And when metastases form, they reinitiate this process. So once again, you will have a new cell, which initially could be dormant. So that's another uh, subclass. But once that cell starts growing, it again forms a lump, which will have an exterior and a hypoxic interior, and then a, 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 another herd migrating away. What do you think happens to the microbiome? You know, the reason why I asked is I, I spoke to a lady named Florencia McAllister, who I brought up a lot. Uh, she's studying pancreatic tumors, and she said that the microbiome of the pancreas was different from the tumor sites. They had, a, you know, attracted their own different microbiome. It wasn't fully characterized, but, you know, I know in the normal body, the microbiome around cells, you know, will give them metabolites. The cells will give them metabolites, and they kind of trade with each other and, you know, help each other along. Do you think that this is happening in cancer, and how would this change the microbiome? You know, would, do you think early on in tumor formation, the microbiome would change? And as the heterogeneity progresses, the microbiome would keep changing around a cell or a mass, I'm sorry. Yeah, so it's an interesting question, and it's definitely not my specialty. I think the microbiome may play different roles in different cancers. I mean, some human parts, such as the gut, uh, is a major place for microbiome. But other parts of the body are not. Like um, if we um, think of, uh, let's say, a brain or uh, liver. I mean, I don't know, but I think the microbiome, the presence of microbiome is, is much less there just because it's a compact tissue and it's, uh, it's not so hospitable for, you know, bacteria. I don't think there are bacteria in the brain. I may be wrong. But, you know, some uh, sites are definitely, they harbor a major microbiome, examples being the whole digestive system, the skin, and so on. And, um, and then what's the role of the microbiome is a very complex question because um, the microbiome interacts with the whole system, the whole human body, and as a consequence, it can contribute to inflammation. It can perturb, perturb the immune system, which obviously has consequences on cancer. And that's some topic we haven't touched on yet, but definitely the immune system uh, plays a major role in catching, trying to catch abnormal cells and trying to eliminate. So all of this complex interplay is not my, my specialty, but I think there is a role, but that's um, uh, happening at a 
of system level at the whole body uh, as a system level rather than locally. Now, uh, locally, I think there may be interactions locally uh, for in places like the gut, where definitely aligning microbiome can cause cause or prevent local inflammation. It can uh, change the metabolite conditions. So definitely there is a local interplay. For other types of cancers where there is no local microbiome, it's more systemic. Okay. Do you think tumors, I mean, do you think they recruit their own immune system or they're just reliant on the, the overall host immune system, I would guess, and their interaction with Oh, that's a hugely complex question. Once again, is my expertise is limited, but um, I think initially when tumors start, they don't have their own uh, immune system in any way. But as they develop, of course, depending totally on the tumor type, how that's um, how that looks foreign to the immune system, the tumor will be attacked. At least some cell types will be attacked. And at that point, it's going to be another evolutionary survival game, which basically consists in figuring out how to trick the immune system. Uh, first of all, not to be attacked. And second, sometimes even to uh, uh, protect or fuel uh, tumor growth. And cells that are able to do that will grow faster, will become heterogeneous faster, and uh, involve the immune system in that. Okay. You know, if tumors are more prone to viral infection, you know if they can be infected by viruses or by bacteria any differently from surrounding healthy tissue? That's another complex question because, it again, it refers to the immune system. When we talk about infections, we can't avoid the immune system. And the question is, is the innate and, uh, and secondary uh, immune system of the tumor cells and their microenvironment different from normal? And that, again, depend, may depend totally on the tumor type. You know, if um, innate immunity is upregulated and uh, there is some surveillance going on, uh, it may actually prevent infections uh, attacking tumors. On the other hand, if this is downgraded, then the infections may actually have access uh, to the tumor. I would say that initially it's a very difficult question, but when tumors develop sufficiently that a patient receives treatment, then many times that treatment um, suppresses the immune system. And that's when, uh, you know, infections get a chance. And it may not be directly because of the tumor, but more because of the treatment mm, okay. that compromises the immune system. I would expect, yeah, the, the cell membrane of cancer cells, you know, they're going to have up and down regulation of different receptors and, you know, different things appearing on the cell membrane surface to hide the immune system. And therefore their attack surface you know, in the eyes of viruses, I would think would be very different. So I would, I would guess that they'd be more susceptible to some and less susceptible to others, but there would be some noticeable difference if you were able to compare, you know, their susceptibility to healthy cells. Yeah, uh, that's uh, uh, totally fair to say. One particular feature is that uh, the tumor cells change their features compared to normal epithelia. So um, if they were expressing a receptor that the virus uh, needed, for infection, they may be expressing it at lower level. And when that happens, then they are less uh, of a target to the virus. So they are, that's totally possible. But um, how it happens and um, to what degree may totally depend on the tumor type, which um, I'm not necessarily capable of knowing how it happens specifically in various types. Okay. This is more of a general one. What, what abilities do cancer cells have that normal cells don't? I guess one of the abilities is possibly they can proliferate 
you know, uh, unchecked, possibly. I mean, what other abilities do they seem to have? They can break off and go throughout the body and form metastases, but, you know, are there others that you're familiar with? I think these are important and probably most the most important capability to grow without appropriate signal. And once again, referring back to breast cancer, for example, uh, most breast cancers are ER positive and ER is estrogen receptor. It's a receptor that uh, when it's active, it tells the cells to grow. And normally this is, a, is at some, some normal level, but when you overexpress this, it's like having 50 ears instead of two. So even a slight sound may, may cause a reaction. The same way, even a small signal may cause these cells to proliferate. So on the other hand, there is the other side of the coin that's death. Cells are required to die when they do something abnormal, when they are infected or when they uh, somehow injured. And when they don't do that, like they have a DNA damage and they don't die, that's the other side of the coin, evasion of death. So uh, both are possible and both can confer advantage to cells compared to normal one. And then you mentioned migration. That's coming later, but some people say it actually happens pretty early too. It can happen when cells are able to migrate away and uh, invade and inhabit uh, new sites in the body. That's again an advantage. And that's uh, uh, more related, as as I said, I think it's the common denominator is uh, protein level changes and RNA level changes and rewiring of the cell's molecular makeup turning it from a locally growing cell into a migrating invading cell. And then uh, we talked about the immune surveillance and uh, evasion of death and the co-option of the immune system, um, which can also happen. And uh, that requires additional molecular changes that I'm not sufficiently familiar with. But these are just some properties that uh, definitely cancer cells, if they have, they make the cancer worse. To you, what, what makes a cancer aggressive versus not aggressive? How would you characterize that? Aggressive usually refers to progressing quickly. And um, uh, I would say heterogeneity plays a big role in that. Heterogeneity or plasticity, and there is a slight difference between them. Heterogeneity just means that you have um, many cell types to begin with. I think plasticity means that cells can convert into other cell types very easily uh, based on local or distant signals. So both of those properties will make tumors more aggressive. And uh, it really relates back to evolutionary theory because um, evolution and uh, response to selection requires heterogeneity. Without heterogeneity, you will not get fitness improvement. And basically that's what happens. Cells diversify. Then when uh, they are under certain selection, a subgroup of cells does better and the process continues. Okay. So once right. again, I'm coming back to heterogeneity as the uh, as a main feature of aggressiveness from my perspective, at least. Okay, and then yeah, last question for now. What what are some of the new and upcoming uh, potential treatments for cancers or understanding breakthroughs that you're you're recently aware of that you're excited about? Yeah, so obviously the latest major breakthrough was uh, immunotherapy, uh, which is. Uh, turning off uh, cancer's ability to inactivate immune cells. So that definitely um, was a major breakthrough that will will have major consequences. So it, it is already having major consequences. Targeted therapy is advancing. Uh, so this is uh, finding molecular features 
that could be attacked. The problem with that is that, and that's a major driver of uh, drug development uh, of the drug industry. The problem with that is that it's still a lot based on finding single molecules. So there is this pipeline, let's find a molecule by whatever advanced way and then develop a molecule being a protein or a, a, a cellular a molecule and then find a small molecule that binds to it and inhibits it. So people have tried this and there were major efforts. Like one thing that comes up is, is KRAS. People just started being able to uh, inhibit KRAS activation. Uh, but um, that's like a, a picture that continues. And I think uh, it, it has, you know, as time goes on, this is a diminishing returns scenario. So there, there has to be a new way. There have to be new approaches to to more treatment. And now we come to speculation, right? So for example, we dis- we discussed uh, microbiomes and we discussed uh, cancer as a, a systemic disease. If we are able to understand more how the human body deals with cancer and, and handles it, we may be able to de- define combinatorial therapy that maybe um, re- rewire the human body in a sense that is less, less acceptive of metastases, for example. We talked about heterogeneity. So that's a pretty neglected aspect of cancer. Whenever we develop drugs targeting a molecule, we assume that, oh, that's the Achilles heel of cancer, that molecule. But that, that disregards the heterogeneity, that some cells have that molecule at a high level. Some cells will have a, lo- a low level of that molecule. So targeted therapies will kill the first type of cells, but not the second. So somehow targeting heterogeneity itself, I think, will be an, an emerging theme. And there are some success stories uh, on that. Uh, there, were, there were publications for viral infections regarding HIV from uh, my friend Lior Weinberger's uh, lab at uh, uh, the Gladstone Institute, UCSF. Uh, so targeting heterogeneity is an interesting avenue. And we don't know yet what causes heterogeneity non-genetically in cells. So genetic heterogeneity, we know about mutations and so on. Turning down mutation rates is one thing. But then a non-genetic heterogeneity, are there general regulators of that, is, is an emerging theme that I think will be uh, interesting. And then finally, and the list probably continues, but I would like to mention gene therapy and vaccines like RNA, DNA-based uh, vaccines that um, we are now, uh, because of the coronavirus, we uh, crossed that threshold of starting using uh, RNA vaccines. But we have to realize that RNA vaccines are way more than just uh, a mechanism to uh, make ACE2 protein. Uh, They basically can reprogram cells. They can reprogram cells that broke away from the rules. So how we will uh, employ this uh, will be really exciting. And it's not going to be a simple chemical-based approach. It it will be interesting. Now we can start editing genomes. We can start delivering DNA, RNA into cells and achieve reprogramming. And I think that's a new frontier that we may need to uh, watch. Oh, and the microbiome, of course, people who work on that could also tell you more about that frontier. But yeah, innovative approaches will be highly needed. Okay. Well, very good. Oh, where can people go to find out more about your work? Oh, um, uh, I think uh, my website is a good place. My publications and website, and I'm happy to answer questions if... uh, Anyone uh, wants to contact me with interesting or uh, reasonable scientific question, I'm happy to uh, discuss, engage in that. And um, I'm, I will be trying to develop uh, addition, an additional website or 
uh, finding out ways to communicate. And uh, in that respect, I'd like to really thank you because you are really the playing the role that uh, is highly needed nowadays uh, oh, in um, connecting the scientists to the public, uh, asking the right questions, asking interesting questions that illuminate where science is and how it may benefit the population. So um, a huge thanks uh, to you for doing that. Oh, no problem. Yeah. Well, Gabor, thanks for coming back on. And I, I really appreciate it. Thank you very much, Richard. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.